Hi, listeners. This is Sheila, your host for the Communicate Influence podcast. This week, we're going to be discussing brand ambassador programs. Every brand ambassador program is different, but most of them use the passion of brand supporters by giving them the autonomy to carry the brand's message to consumers. They also enhance one of the most effective marketing tools a brand can use, word of mouth. My guest is journalist and author Peter Barron, who's based in Darlington, the north of England. After serving as editor of the regional newspaper The Northern Echo for 17 years, Pete set up his own media company in 2016. More recently, he became a brand ambassador for a financial institution called the Darlington Building Society. This episode is a bit longer than previous ones, and this is because I wanted to explore the reputation, qualities, and achievements necessary to make the role of brand ambassador a successful one. Before we start the conversation with Pete, here's a word from this week's sponsor, markgaberti.com. Do you want to increase your income? If so, you need Mark Gaberti's income spreadsheet. Mark's free income spreadsheet comes with places where you can fill in your income streams and list your expenses. This income spreadsheet makes it easy for you to track how you use your money, which is a big step towards financial freedom. To get your free income spreadsheet, you can head over to markgaberti.com forward slash income hyphen spreadsheet or join the Breakthrough Success Facebook group. And we'll include the sponsor link in the show notes. And now let's connect with Pete Barron and talk about his role as a brand ambassador. Hi, Pete, and welcome very much to the podcast. Hi, Sheila. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm, I'm great. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's great to connect after we work together at the Northern Echo. I'm happy that we've stayed in touch and I'm, I'm thrilled that you're able to be a guest on my uh, podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. So you've got You've had a really successful background, or sorry, I should say a really successful career in journalism. Mm. And you've got this new role as an ambassador for a financial institution in Darlington in the north of England. So first of all, can you tell us about your um, your background, where you're from in the northeast and your journalism career? And then we'll move into the role of okay. ambassador, yeah? Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, I I grew up in a in a place called Southbank, which is a suburb of Middlesbrough. So Middlesbrough is a steel community in the northeast of England, probably about thirty miles from Newcastle. Um, I grew up on a council estate, so my dad was a, a steel worker. My mum was the local post lady, um, and that's where I grew up. And um, most kids in that area, really, you either went into you went into industry. That was the expectation. But I just decided that I wanted to be a writer, and I was inspired by a, a campaigning journalist from the Daily Mirror called John Pilger. Um, and uh, I went into journalism. I, I went to Darlington College, where they run a training college for for journalists. Darlington's a market town, again, in the north of, northeast of England. It's the birthplace of the railways. That's what it's famous for. But it also became well known as a place to be trained as a journalist. So I went there as a young boy of 18, 19 to, to be trained as a journalist. And that's how I began. That's great. And I have to ask this question, Pete. What did your parents say when uh, you told them that you didn't want to follow the traditional path and that you wanted to be a journalist? Well, I think... 
In a place like Middlesbrough, there were quite low aspirations, really. And, you know, my dad wanted me to be a welder. And I'll be honest, I didn't know what a welder did, but it was it was all they knew. Um, and um, they just wanted they just wanted something that they saw as secure, really. But um, and that was the steelworks. Well, it proved to be not secure because the. Uh, the community on Teesside has had a, a massive blow in the last few years. Thousands of jobs have been lost through the decline of the steel industry. Um, and I suppose newspapers as well <laughs> has gone through a gone through a decline as well. But, um, you know, I, I just went in a different route. And I'm really glad I did because I've had nearly 40 years in journalism now and I've had a fascinating life um, and I wouldn't have swapped it for anything. Oh, that's great. And I mean, yours is, you know, a truly magnificent story. You were so successful, as you said. You know, you started off as an 18-year-old at uh, college in Darlington. Uh, tell tell listeners a little bit about your career with the, uh, you know, the um, eventually becoming editor of the Northern Echo and that paper's illustrious history as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I started on a newspaper called the Scunthorpe Evening Telegraph because when you're a young journalist, you've got to be prepared to go anywhere in the country. And I applied for a trainee's job on the Scunthorpe Evening Telegraph. Now, Scunthorpe, again, is a steel town, um, closer to the middle of the country in England, really. It's about um, two hours from, from Darlington, two hours south. Um, but I started there and then I stayed down there for about three years learning the profession. And I came to the North Echo in 1984 as a reporter. And I came to the North Echo because I wanted to come back home. I wanted to come back to the northeast of England. Um, but also the Northern Echo had this incredible reputation as a campaigning newspaper and that's what inspired me I was I was I wanted to change the world and I know it sounds a bit pompous but I really did want to use the power of the press to make a difference and um, I came to the Northern Echo because it had this incredible tradition of campaigning journalism um, great editors um, the, the most famous of all is probably Sir Harold Evans who's now based in New York, but Sir Harold Evans is probably, I, I'm, I guess he's the most famous living journalist of all, and he was the editor of the Northern Echo in the 1960s, and he changed the world, you know. He, um, he for example, he made cervical cancer testing part of the, the National Health Service in the in this country while mm -hmm. he was the editor of the Northern Echo. Um, he saw that there was this need for women to have the right to that test as part of the NHS and he fought for it and he became and it became part of women's expectations of their health service in this country so that was just one of many examples of what he did through um, the power of the press and as editor of the Northern Echo and it was it was that that I wanted to come and be part of. Mm. Uh, I mean, that makes sense. And you, you talked about, you know, the fact that it, it must sound pompous wanting to change the world. But don't you think that a lot of uh, young journalists feel like that? I hope so. And, I, and I, you know, my, my big worry now, the way things are going, um, there are some fantastic young journalists out there. And I'm sure that they have the same burning passion for, for campaigning and investigative journalism that, that brought me into the profession. My fear for them is that there is so much pressure now on 
you know, what we all call in the industry clickbait, which is, you know, um, how many clicks their story is going to get online and that's how they're being judged. And I think there's a real danger that we we lose the focus on campaigning and, and I really hope that that doesn't happen. We mustn't let it happen because a lot of the best campaigns begin at the grassroots on local newspapers, whether they're in the northeast of England or whether they're in other parts of the world, that's where it begins a lot of the time, because you know your communities, and uh, we've got to we've got to maintain that. There's huge pressure, financial pressure on local newspapers all over the world, and in England, that's no exception. Um, but I really believe that journalism at the grassroots is vital to a healthy democracy and we've got to maintain that. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, when you look at the things that are lost, such as covering City Hall and what's happening in your community, it's tragic really. And I learned that, uh, I think it was two years ago, the first ever newspaper that I worked on, uh, the Camrose Canadian in Alberta Mm. was was closed by one of the main publishers in Canada, uh, Post Media, which again, is very sad for that community. Now, yeah. did you did you go to the Northern Echo? Did you begin working there as a reporter or did you immediately become editor? How did that unfold? No, no, I was a, I was um I went to the Northern Echo as a newly qualified senior reporter. So in in um in journalism you do about Two, in those days, it was about three years training. So you're a trainee reporter, and I was a trainee reporter at Scunthorpe, and then I came to the Northern Echo after I passed my senior examinations to become a senior reporter. So I started as a reporter, and I made my way up through the news desk. I became the news editor of the paper, and then after being news editor, you then go into the executive ranks, so you become an assistant editor and then the deputy editor. I was acting editor of the Northern Echo for about eight months when the editor left, the previous editor left. And after eight months, I didn't get the job after being acting editor for eight months. And that was a bit of a blow. Um, um, but I, I went away. I went to, I was told that I needed to go and get more experience. And I went to a newspaper again in the northeast of England called the Hartlepool Mail. Um, and I was the editor of the Hartlepool Mail. That was my first editorship. Stayed there for just over a year and then the Northern Echo job came came up again and I got a phone call saying they wanted me to come back. And uh, I became the editor of the paper in 1997, which was one of the proudest days of my life, I think, other than um, getting married and having my children, being becoming the editor of the Northern Echo in 19, 1999, it was, not 97. Um um, and uh, I was just so proud, really, because it was such an institution. The Northern Echo meant so much. It was part of the fabric of the northeast of England. So that's how it happened. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that that would be a, a very special day for you. And of course, compared to today, the, the Northern Echo was such an important part of, of not just the local, but the regional community as well. It's a regional newspaper, or it was in its, you know, in its heyday when when you took over. Tell tell our listeners uh, what the circulation was back then, and what the role of editor entailed, not just in the newsroom but in the community as well. Well, I think you know we've we've got to remember we've got to put it into context because this was the 1980s, so there were no you know there were more, no mobile phones, there were no computers. Um, it was typewriters in those days. The Northern Echo was this incredible 
um, regional newspaper. Now, it covered an area which spans from Newcastle all the way down to York, which is about 80 miles apart. It covers a massive area for a local newspaper. And it had seven editions in those days to be as local as it possibly could be across such a big region. It had seven editions. Well, there's only one edition now. Um, there's a fraction of the staff. Um, and um, it was a newspaper that tried to be local, regional and national. Um, one of the, m the most important statistics for me when I became the editor of the paper, when I did my research and looked into the stats around the readership, was that seven out of ten readers of the Northern Echo didn't buy a national newspaper. They expected their most important national news to still be in the Northern Echo. So we were everything from being right down to the grassroots of our local communities. Um, we covered the big regional stories across the, the northeast of England. Um, we covered Yorkshire as well, but we also made sure that we were a national newspaper as well. And, and that goes all the way back to the North Echo's history, really, because when the Northern Echo was born in 1870, it was born because it was the birthplace of the railways. And they, they realised that if they had a newspaper based in Darlington, it could be on sale all over the country. And the Northern Echo, I think, has a real genuine claim to be the Britain's first national newspaper because of that. And it, it maintained that kind of tradition for many, many years. Um, and that's why... I was attracted to it because it had that kind of status, but also because it had this reputation for trying to make a difference. Mm. And in trying to make a difference, one of the things that, that comes to mind for me is uh, the campaigns that you yeah. you spearheaded them and you steered them. Tell, tell us about about those campaigns, Pete, and, and any memorable ones that come to mind? Well, I think the most important one, I mean, I, I was very lucky to, to be there for a long time. And I was also very lucky to, to have some brilliant journalists on my team. And, it, you know, it would be wrong to, to not give people due credit for, for actually being the, the people who wrote those campaigns. So, I mean, the one I always talk about and the one I think is the most important in my time it was very close to home, actually, because it was a photographer on the Northern Echo called Ian Weir, who who very sadly died at the age of 38. And Ian was a, f a good friend of mine. And I hadn't been the editor. I think I'd been editor for six months when Ian died at the age of 38. He was a father of two. I'd known him, you know, for years. and um, And he died because... He'd had a heart attack one morning. We were playing golf one morning and he didn't feel well. Um, and he asked if he could stop playing golf. And he, he actually was having a heart attack. We didn't know it then, but he was having a heart attack. Um, and, he, and he survived the heart attack, but he had some tests. And the tests showed that he needed a triple heart bypass urgently. And um, he then waited for news of when he would get his heart bypass operation and he actually waited eight months. And I was visiting him regularly as his boss um, and when I was visiting him, I, I told him that I had a meeting coming up with Tony Blair because Tony Blair was Prime Minister at the time and we were the local newspaper for Tony Blair because his constituency, Sedgefield, was in the northeast of England. And I, was having, I used to have regular meetings with Tony Blair in those days. And I said, look, I'm seeing Tony Blair. 
next week and he said, will you give him a letter from me? And he'd written a letter saying how scared he was about how long he'd waited already. I think it was six months at that time, waiting for news of when he would get his heart bypass operation. And I gave Tony Blair the letter and I kept a copy of it. Um, and two months later, I got a phone call at seven o'clock in the morning, which I will never, I'll never forget. Um, it was from Ian's wife, Maggie. And she was very calm on the phone saying that Ian had had another heart attack and the paramedics were at their house in Darlington. Um, and she said, I think we've lost him. And by the time I got to the house that day, um, Ian was, was being declared dead um, mm. in that family home. And it was surreal because he had two little boys called Joe and Charlie and there was so much chaos in the house of paramedics and, you know, dealing with the body and everything. And I, I, I spent an hour playing basketball out, outside with the two boys, just getting them out of the way. And I remember Joe, who was his eldest son, saying to me, you know, we, we were playing basketball and and we just he, he just stopped and he just said to me, Pete, has my dad died? And I said, I'm really sorry, Joe, but yeah, he has. And, you know, and, and I'll never forget that day is probably the most memorable day in of my life in many ways because it was just so incredibly sad. But... After the after Ian's funeral, um, we we decided we wanted to give the family the dignity of the fu- you know waiting for the funeral. But after the funeral, we absolutely went for the government because it, he'd waited eight months, and we had a brilliant health editor be called Barry Nelson. And I said to Barry, "Look, I don't want you to do anything else. All I want you to do is concentrate on this campaign. I want you to find out." how long people are waiting for heart bypass operations in other parts of Europe. And what we discovered was that the the average waiting time in Britain was 12 months and the average waiting time across Europe was three months. Well, that got me angry. Why? Why were people waiting so long in a rich country like Britain for heart bypass operations? And they were dying. And Ian brought that story to life. And what I did was I published the letter the copy of the letter that I'd given to Tony Blair on the front page and it just went berserk because we were the the Prime Minister's local newspaper highlighting a scandal in the National Health Service. And to cut a very long story short, we campaigned and we campaigned and we campaigned and it led to um, heart bypass operations, waiting times in Britain being cut from 12 months to three months. And the government publicly acknowledged it was down to the Northern Echo and the Ian Weir campaign. And I think as a journalist, there's nothing more important that you can do. A bit like Harold Evans in the 1960s with the cervical cancer campaign, you know, saving people's lives. And I know that campaign has saved lives for the past 20 years because it made a difference. It shamed the government into action. And uh, that's the campaign that I'll always remember. I mean that that's such a moving story, um, mm. a very a very sad story, but again powerful. Um, you know, you it was your passion and probably I have to say anger as well that that you know made that that uh, campaign successful and helped so many people. Well, you know, even now it's twenty. It's the twentieth twentieth anniversary last year, and I went back to I investigated it again. In I'm a columnist for the Northern Echo now, and I wanted to know. 20 years on, had it still made a difference? Had it had it slipped back? And 
I spoke to heart surgeons and um, and whatever in the northeast, and and I was just I was just so gratified to find out that twenty years on, they were saying to me that that campaign is still making a difference even now. It transformed the way that the NHS dealt with coronary care in this country, and um, um, so it, it moves me even now, and I still I still get upset by it. I, you know, it was a sh- it was so it's such a shocking thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, to see your friend and um you know die um but i think it's a responsibility that journalists have when they see something that is wrong you have got to do something about it that's that to me is you know we can we can report the news and and absolutely we should do that but i think we also have an absolute responsibility to put things right and put pressure on where we need to put pressure on and uh you know, uh, I'm talking about that that day still with a lump in my throat now because, you know, it, it is so incredibly sad that those two boys grew up without their dad. But I know that they find comfort in the fact that his death led to change that has saved other lives. Mm. What was your uh, next conversation with Tony Blair like after you ran that edition of the Northern Echo with that? including that letter? Well, do you know, it was such a long time ago. You know, I can't remember, really. I mean, we always had a really good relationship with Tony Blair. And, you know, they were absolutely fine about it. You know, uh, they they knew that something needed to be done. I mean, a lot of the discussions and the negotiations during the campaign were with Alan Milburn, who it was a really strange set of circumstances because... Tony Blair was Prime Minister in Sedgefield and the neighbouring constituency was Darlington where the MP was a a guy called Alan Milburn and Alan Milburn just happened to be the Health Secretary so it was kind of a perfect storm really. We had this father of two, a young father of two who died in these incredibly tragic circumstances and two neighbouring constituencies in our heartland. One one MP was the Prime Minister and one MP was the, the Health Secretary. But I mean, I have to give Alan Milburn huge credit because, you know, he responded in exactly the right way. Yes, he had the local newspaper um, banging on about it. That inspired huge national coverage. I mean, the Daily Mail, uh, I remember the Daily Mail front page lead was the father who didn't need to die. You know, so the government was under a huge pressure, which was kicked off by the Northern Echo. But to give them their, their due, they put it right. You know, mm. they, 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 they launched the first ever national framework for coronary care in this country. And heart bypass waiting times were cut from 12 months to three months. Well, you know, fair, fair enough. They, it was wrong. They put it right. And... And that's that. That that to me is the right way. You know, a, a local newspaper voiced something that was terrible, and a government responded. I'd like to think that in a democracy, that that will happen again and again and again. That local newspapers highlight things that are wrong in their communities and say this has to change. You would hope that governments listen. Mm, of course, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest campaigns that that you uh, oversaw, and you had many others as well. And you you also oversaw the day to day operations, or mm. sorry, the day to day production of the the news in the Northern Echo. Now, 
I, I was aware as well that you you did a lot of other things in the community, didn't you? What what kind of things were they, and how did they kind of um, raise your profile? Well, I always believed that an, an an editor of a newspaper had to be absolutely immersed in the local community. So right from the beginning, um, I wanted to make sure that. I was known that I was involved. And a lot of it, to be honest, was um, I got onto the local speaking circuit. And I think that this is something that <laughs> is really important for, for, for editors. I, you know, speaking to, you know, whether it's the Women's Institute or the local Rotary Club or, um, you know, business groups, whatever it was, I, I I got on the speaking circuit. Now, if you take an institution like the Women's Institute, there are hundreds and hundreds of branches of the Women's Institute in local communities. And I just got involved in going out to meet them, talk to them, have a cup of tea afterwards. I also became a member of various partnerships, um, you know, which were like economic partnerships, uh, talking about how to improve the prosperity of local communities. Um, I got involved in various charities. But what it did was not, not only raise the profile of the paper and raise my own personal profile, but it was a real education for me because I, even in the days of social media, I mean, I, I hear people say, well, it's, you know, it's all done through social media now. And, I, you know, social media is without doubt you know, a, a great tool for building relationships. But I absolutely believe you will never, you will never be able to substitute the relationships that you build face to face with people and getting out there. Because over a cup of tea with the WI, what you get is you get real feedback, what they like, what they don't like, what they think is good about the paper, what's important to them. And over... You know, I think the first seven years of my editorship, um, I was considering whether to turn the paper tabloid. Um, it was a broadsheet in those days, and and it convinced me that feedback, that grassroots feedback from the local community, really made me feel this paper has to become, if it's going to have a future, a long term future, it has to be. Uh, tabloid. We called it compact then because tabloid was seen as a bit of a sort of down market word. Um, so the, mm. the word compact was adopted, but really we changed the shape and the size of the paper. And it's that kind of thing. Um, but by going out and being part of the community, I, I, I understood, I think, I hope, I understood much, much more accurately what readers wanted. Mm. And of course, you know, in addition to the healthcare campaigns and the fact that you, you know, you met with the WI, as you said, you were involved in many other things. I mean, I can remember um, there was a campaign or you were very active around uh, Darlington Football Club at one point, maybe in the early 2000s. Was the was the club about to leave Darlington? I can't remember the details. No, well, it was just going bust. Darlington, Darlington Football Club was quite a low league football club, but nevertheless a very important part of the local community. And um, it went it went bust, basically. And, um, you know, we... I think as a part of the local community, you've got to try and 
do what you can to raise money. So um, we were very much part of the, the campaign to save Darlington Football Club from going into liquidation. Um, I remember even at a time when we were having difficult financial you know, um, challenges at the paper. I think the staff hadn't had a pay rise um, that year and maybe the year before, I can't remember now, but, you know, we still we still gave a cheque for £10,000 to the local football club because they were part of, they were part of the community and so were we and we supported their campaign. And, you know, and I think there was another example of that kind of fundraising, the importance of a local newspaper being the catalyst for fundraising. I remember when Princess Diana died in 1997, she died. And um, I think I was acting editor at that time. And um, when she died, we'd been carrying a lot of stories in the paper about how the northeast of England was the only region in England that didn't have a children's hospice. And they'd laid the foundations for a children's wing at the Butterwick Hospice, which is in a a place called Stockton-on-Tees, but they'd run out of money. And um, when Diana died and there was that wave of emotion around the country, hysteria, really, uh, we, we said at the Northern Echo, look, this is an opportunity to launch a campaign to build that children's hospice. And we launched an appeal in Diana's memory to build a children's hospice. And so much money was raised, hundreds of thousands of pounds was raised by that that appeal and the children's hospice was built as a result of that and what that taught me was one people are really generous when you touch their hearts and they can see a real need and if they're galvanized by the local newspaper but um you know also it it showed me that um there is good news can all almost always be found in bad news when there's a tragedy, when something goes wrong, like the Ian Weir story that I talked about, you know, terrible tragedy, you know, I always used to think, well, what can we do as a result of that bad news to turn it into something positive? And I think building a children's hospice was was another great positive outcome of a terrible tragedy. You know, the loss of Princess Diana mm-hmm. um, was, it was a huge story, you know, across the world, not just in England. Um, but a children's hospice was built as a result. Mm. Yeah, that that's um, you know, as you said, you you got something, some good out of something that that uh, really affected and upset a lot of people. And you know, with all this kind of uh, the conversation so far, we've talked about everything that you've achieved in your profile, kind of leading to this role that you have as as an ambassador for um, what's called the Darlington Building Society. It's a financial institution, and I'm aware there'll be lots of listeners who who don't know what a building society is. It's like a bank, isn't it? Can you yeah. tell us what that is? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the roles that, I, you know, when I left the Northern Echo, I, I launched my own business, Peter Barron Media, and um, I always describe it as like, it's like jumping out of an aeroplane and not sh- not knowing whether the parachute was going to open. But um, I launched a business and and I was lucky because because I'd been around such a long time and I had a high profile. I got a number of um, offers to get involved in various things involving the media, and one of them was Darlington Building Society. And as you say, Darlington Building Society, a building society is a kind of bank, but it's a mutual, which means that it's owned buy and run for the benefit of members, savers, borrowers. Because it it doesn't have any shareholders, 
interest to satisfy. The profits are put back into the society for the benefit of members. And what I loved about Darlington Building Society was that, you know, even now, all the way through its history, it's been um, it's been part of the community. It believes in the localness of its services. And 5% of all its profits um, are given back out in grants to a, a huge range of good causes in the community. Um, and the chief executive of the Building Society, who, um, who I knew, um, contacted me and said, look, would you, would you be interested in getting involved with us and putting your name to Downs and Building Society. Well, it was a kind of no-brainer for me because, you know, this wasn't, this was a really well-respected local institution with a very positive ethos and very community-minded. So why would I not get involved? And uh, it was a paid-for role as well, so it was part of my business. But what it meant was that they wanted me to be their community ambassador. Mm -hmm. uh, we're launching a... A program, a, a, um, an ambassador program. The idea was that they were going to have a, a number of community ambassadors to represent them, not be directly employed by them, but represent them in the community. And I was the first one to be signed up. Um, and it was because of that, all that work that I'd done as editor over however many years um, of getting out and about and going talking to the women's institutes and building up those relationships and that public profile. And that's what attracted the, the building society. Um, and, um, you know, I started working for them as a, as a community ambassador and, uh, and I have been now for the past three years. So lots of people, uh, sorry, lots of organizations, people in marketing and communications are, are keen on ambassador programs because, you know, they really help um, build up a brand from the grassroots level. Mm. So tell us a little bit about what you've done to date, Pete, and um, how, how well it's gone. What have you been up to as an ambassador? <clears throat> well, I mean, it's quite, um, it's quite a wide-ranging role, really, because, I mean, you know, the overall objective is to be a representative of Downton Building Society in the community. So, for example, um, if I go and uh, if, I, if I'm attending an event or if I'm comparing an event, so I compare a lot of events and I'm, I'm still a public speaker. So, for example, every year there is a junior Eurovision song contest in Darlington involving all the local primary schools um, and they all represent a different country and sing a song. I compare that event and it touches hundreds and hundreds of families And but I compare it as the Darlington Building Society ambassador. So that's just one example. Um, as I said, they give 5% of their <clears throat> profits uh, back to um, local good causes. So I get to present checks to the to those community groups. So, um, you know, it might be five thousand pounds that they're being awarded as part of that um, that community um, grant making uh, initiative. I go and present the check. Um, I'm, I'm a representative of of the building society in a in a in a very very positive way. Um, 
and it's worked it's worked really well i've really enjoyed it it's a nice thing to do you know to give people money <laughs> oh, i can imagine yeah I like, I like seeing people smile and darlington building society makes a lot of people smile because it's giving a lot of money away every year and that's a nice thing for me to do mm. and one thing that we didn't touch on when we were chatting earlier is the fact that you're a well-known children's author um and i believe those books came from your column dad at large which was was and still is one of my favorite columns because it's so funny well, thank you tell us a bit about your books and then the uh how that's kind of dovetailed with your role as ambassador yeah well i started writing the books you know, the, the dad at large column is is it's about family life and the funny things that you do when you're a dad and it's written unashamedly from the point of view of a dad and it's it's kind of tongue-in-cheek in the in the sense that it kind of pretends that dads have a much harder time than mums which I know isn't true but it's it's written in that kind of vein and the children say the most funny things and uh, you get yourself into so many funny situations in family life um so I started writing that column oh um well my eldest son is 29 now and I wrote it initially when he was born so nearly 30 years ago um the column's now called granddad at large because i've got a little granddaughter now um so i've been writing that column for a long time those columns were turned into a series of books um that encouraged me then to write some children's books i write a series of books called the monstrous morals which are rhyming books about children they get into bad habits um, whether it's they don't brush their teeth or they don't tidy their bedroom or they pick their nose, whatever it might be. There are seven monstrous morals books out there. And then when I joined Darlington Building Society as their ambassador, they came up with this, this brilliant idea, which was asking me to write a children's book around a little character called Dali the Train. And Dali the Train is named after Darlington, obviously, um, but he's the representative, he's the symbol of a junior savings account that Darlington Building Society has, um, which they launched. And the idea is that children launch their own little savings account and they get a money box in the form of a Dali train. And when they save so much money, they get carriages to attach to the train. And it's a brilliant very simple but very brilliant idea and Dali the train had been created and Darlington Building Society said to me could you bring him to life in a children's book uh, which was just a fantastic commission to have um, and I wrote a book called Dali's Magical History Ride um, and it was a story it is a story about this little train um, who takes a, a group of children on a on a trip to the seaside as a reward for them raising some money for children, poor children, um, and they go on the, they go to the seaside on Dali the train. But on the way, they go through a series of enchanted tunnels, and every time they go through a tunnel, they go back in time, and they meet characters from history. So. They meet World War I soldiers and then the railway pioneers and then Henry VIII and Roman centurions. And it all ends with them meeting dinosaurs. And, uh, and this book was written and published and it is now um, something that is used as a marketing tool to promote the Darlington Building Society junior account. Um, but it's led on to all sorts of other things 
because I now go into schools um, as a literacy ambassador. So I do a reading of Dali on a big screen um, and the children all get to dress up as the historical characters. And we have a whale of a time because they're all dressing up as dinosaurs or Henry VIII or Roman centurions or whatever it is. And as we go through the story, they play the parts. And and it's just a great way of building a bridge between a financial institution and a whole new market, this, this younger generation that will become their customers um, now and in the future, and it also it also obviously um, builds relationships with their parents and their grandparents because it's a great thing to do. Open up a junior account for your children. They get a book, they get a train, and I'm going into schools and and just building these relationships, which is just great fun. Mm, it, it sounds like great fun. It must be you know it must be fun to watch as well. Um, and of course, from a marketing point of view, it's not heavy handed marketing and it, it's really about giving a lot to the children, isn't it? Because you're teaching them about history as well. Oh, well, yeah, not only teaching them about history, but also we, we then we then go on to do um, literacy workshops where we we talk about stories and, and they have to they, 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 what they do is they, they break up into pairs and they work together as pairs on coming up with ideas for what will happen in book two, what will Dali's next adventure be? And they have to imagine, they have to use their imaginations and um, and think about what might happen next. And um, and they, children have got the most amazing imaginations if you unlock them. And they come up with these brilliant ideas and, um, you know, hopefully somewhere down the line, Dal, Dali's magical history to a book two will be out and a lot of it will have been inspired by the children in those sessions so um you know they're, they're getting to use their imagination they're having fun and it's in the name of darlington building society which i think is you know is is a wonderful thing yes you know it is a commercial initiative but it's a commercial initiative by an institution that believes in the community and pumps its profits back into the community. So I'm really comfortable with it. And I just think it's playing a really, really important role. And it's developing all the time because the plan for 2020 is to use that um, that bridge that Dali has built between the building society and the local school community, um, and then start launching financial education sessions as well to teach children about the importance of financial responsibility, of debt, how to get a mortgage, all those things. Um, you know, so it's literacy, it's numeracy, uh, it's 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 making children have a better understanding of the world and it's being done in the name of a building society. That's really worthwhile, isn't it, Pete? Because, I mean, you hear so many people say, oh, I learned this and that in school, but I didn't learn how to write a cheque or manage my bank account. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and mm. I would put myself in that category. I mean, I'm, I'm useless with money. <laughs> and um, I wish I'd had those kind of sessions and those, those lessons. Um, the schools love it, you know, because... You know they're they're getting they're getting this kind of supplementary support in education. If I go into a school, I can be there all morning, and it's it's helping the schools deliver 
um, curriculum priorities, whether it's mm. literacy or whether it's, you know, it's finance. There, there's an appetite from schools. Can you come in and can you deliver these sessions? Um, so I think it's been really positive and I think it can only grow. And of course, it's not just in uh, it's not just in Darlington, is it? Because I noticed that the Building Society has branches, I think, in Redcar and Stockton. So it's across that small region, yeah. Oh, it has nine um, um, branches across the northeast, so um, it has a wide reach. So yeah, I mean, we're going into schools um, right across the region, and what's really lovely is that the branch managers, the managers of each of those branches also has a responsibility to work with me and identify which schools that we're going to go into. So they're getting involved in the community as well, working with me, um, having fun. Um, I went to a, a branch manager's meeting just before Christmas to talk about the development of the new financial workshops. And um, they were having a meeting and we went through a a session as we would in a primary school. I got them all dressing up in the historical <laughs> costumes and they played the roles. These are grown-ups. They had, they had a whale of a time. But mm -hmm. it, I wanted them to understand how it works, how you engage children, because it's not easy always to engage children. But by doing it in a fun, imaginative, creative way, you can really sort of, you can really make a lot of progress. And uh, I think I wanted them to understand it firsthand. So they had to go back in time themselves. They had to become children again and uh, dress up as Roman centurions and dinosaurs. And what you touched on there, um, you talked about kind of one of your responsibilities is to meet up with the, the branch managers. So it sounds as though on the side of Darlington Building Society, there's a lot of planning and preparation going into the ambassador role that you have. Do you know anything about that planning or what happens in the Building Society to help you with your role? And can you share that with our listeners? Well, I think what, what's been really important is that we have um, a quarterly meeting. Um, so the marketing team the PR company that they have, they have a PR company as well employed called Harvey and Hugo who look mm -hmm. after their, 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 their PR. So, and then me as the community ambassador. So we all get together um, and we we just talk about what's happening in the society. We, could, we, we, we have ideas about how we can develop different projects and uh, products and it's just, it's a really creative environment when people get together. And um, I have to, in those meetings, I have to talk about what I've done, where have I been, which schools have we touched upon. Um, and those sessions come up with progress and how we're going to develop the idea. And so the idea of taking the literacy workshops into sort of financial workshops came from those kind of quarterly marketing creative meetings um, and I think that's really really important that you you know you, if you're going to have an ambassador program you don't just let it let it happen and let it drift but get back together and assess it review it think about how it can be better um, and I think Dance and Billing Society has been really good at that. And how does the, the Building Society measure the success of what you're doing? Well, I mean, I suppose the, the obvious 
measure is how many um, junior accounts they're selling. And um, I don't know the figures, I don't know the exact figures, but I know that the junior accounts are going really well and are very popular. And um, I think some of the success is put down to the creativity around the uh, the book um, and all the uh, the school visits that we've been doing. So that's a measure. But I suppose it's it's difficult. It's a bit like how do you measure the value of an editor going out into the community and talking to women's institutes? Does it does it have an impact on newspaper sale? If it does, how would you measure it? It's a really difficult thing to do. And I think to some extent, the role with the building society is, is, is similar because you're going out there and you're, you're promoting the name of Darlington Building Society. I mean, Darlington Building Society is, is in very good shape and it is um, growing um, year on year. So you hope that what you're doing is making a contribution to that growth. Mm. And I'm sure there must be a lot of feedback on what you're doing and the activities that you, that you're involved in, yeah? Well, we get we get really good feedback from the schools. The schools love it. Um, and you know that something's successful. For example, the, the whole um, story um, writing concept, that led on to an idea again from going back to the marketing meetings that I was talking about. One of the ideas that came out of those marketing meetings was that why don't we launch a story writing competition for children. So last year we launched a story writing competition for children and promoted it through the Northern Echo. We had them as a media partner. We had a local radio station as a media partner. Um, and on the back of the success of the of the book, we we launched that competition. And one of the um, one of the marketing um, slogans that that Darlington Building Society has adopted is. It's called Big On. So it's like big on education, big on community, okay. big on saving, whatever it might be. So big on education, it fitted really well with big on education. Um, so we launched a story writing competition for schools. And the idea was that they had to write 500 words. There was a, there was a, a category for primary school children and a category for secondary school children. They had to begin their story with the words, little did I know dot 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 and then that led to something big happening in their story big on education and uh, hundreds I think the, the first year we got something like 400 entries for the competition um, we had six finalists the finalists came to um, they had to read their stories at the local theatre on stage at the local theatre in front of a panel of professional authors as the judges and um, the prize was the children themselves got their own height in books um, so <laughs> that's all of the more books they got but also they won 500 pounds worth of books for their local schools and um, so and that's a you know that's a lot of books for the local school library um, so 500 pounds for the primary school 500 pounds for the secondary school and um, and that goes towards what's called that I should have said earlier really that the Dali Foundation all the profits from all the book sales any sales that we get of the book all of that goes into the Dali Foundation and that money is used to buy books for schools in deprived areas so everywhere you turn the whole project is helping 
to um, educate children and get them reading, which I just think is such an important thing for for children to to read and use their imagination and be inspired and uh, and, and it's it's happening through this idea of using um, a children's character in a book to uh, to promote. A, a financial account at a local building society, but it's grown and grown, and and I just think it's been it's been a, a brilliant idea and a great great success. Mm, so it really embraces some important and very fundamental values, doesn't it? There's nothing you know. There's nothing more important than than uh, a child getting a good ec- education to set them up for success in life. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So. There's a lot of planning that goes on behind within the building society. You attend meetings, that kind of thing. Um, it's pretty structured and well organized. But on, on a more personal level, Pete, and I know that you, you touched on this. You you said it's fun giving giving out money and when you have to, that kind of thing. But but what you get from being an ambassador, how does it feel to you? Well, <laughs> I think it, it's good for me. Well, first of all, it's good for me because it's part of my business, you know. So I, I earn money as a result of it, and, and, I, and I, I make no apology for that because that, you know, I'm in a position now where I'm a freelance. I have to earn earn a living. Um, but as you said, you know, I'm very comfortable with it. I'm, I'm in a position now where. I don't have to suffer fools anymore. I can pick and choose who I want to work for. And I'm really proud to work for Darlington Building Society because they are very, very community-minded. They're very ethical. You know, they're putting profits back into the local community. So for me, um, I think it's, one, it's really good fun. Um, I believe in what I'm doing. I'm, I, I want to play a role in... You know, getting children reading, um, inspiring them to read, um, because I've had a great life because of my love of the written word, and it's taken me to you know all sorts of places, and uh, and I wouldn't have swapped that. So if I can inspire children um, to to read and then write themselves and hopefully become authors themselves in the future, or journalists, or editors, or whatever that might be, I get a huge amount of satisfaction from that. Um, you know, so in some ways, it's not it's not work. Um, it's it's just it's great fun and it's enormous satisfaction. Um, but I also think it also helps me to you know I'm no longer the editor of the Northern Echo. I haven't been the editor of the Northern Echo for four years now, um, and it's important for for me as a as a as a somebody who's trying to run a media company to to be involved still in the community so it's a reason for me to go out into the community still um and i think that's that's good for my business mm, yeah of course that's great so uh, a great opportunity for you and i know that you really love children as well so it must be it must be uh, lovely for you to be in those classrooms with those little kids Oh, it's a it's a hoot. It really is a hoot. I mean, you know, when you have it, you have hundreds of kids in an assembly, um, and everybody wants to be the dinosaur. Every you you, you ask volunteers <laughs> to get involved, and everybody. I have a dinosaur costume, and I make them. Um, so many hands go up, and uh, they have to do an audition, which is they have to roar. 
as loudly as possible and be as scary as possible because when the dinosaur appears he appears from out of the uh, the you know the, the the foliage and the undergrowth and all that and he has to burst out of the forest and he has to be scary so they have to audition um it's just it's just great fun i, I look forward to if i get um you know, a booking from a school to go in. I really look forward to it um, mm. because uh, it's just, it's just, it's just great fun. You turn into a kid yourself again, which is no bad thing. No, of course not. It's it's uh, lots of fun and it's healthy. Um, just quickly before we we kind of close, I think there are a couple of important questions, and I know that you sent. We kind of discussed this before, and this is important for our listeners, but. I'd like to ask you, Pete, what what key tips would you give to an organisation that, that's uh, setting up an ambassador program? Um, well, I think um, the, the first thing really is that um, you've got to to be very selective. I think um, you know in terms of who you ask to be your ambassador. Um, you've got to make sure that they are going to add value to your organisation. Um, I think there is a temptation sometimes, oh, we'll have that person as ambassador. But what are they going to do for you? Be selective and understand what they're going to deliver. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the things that I would say um, is, is really important. Um, and then I think to make sure that there is an accountability around it as well. So like I said, having those those creative meetings um, where you are looking back and looking forward, I think they're really important. So it's not just allowed to drift. Um, um, be clear about what you want the ambassadors to do. Think about the areas where they can really add value. You know, what are their strengths and their skills? Um, mm -hmm. I would be rubbish at delivering the financial workshops, you know, so... That's not my strength. And, and I think when you're putting an ambassador program together, think about the team. How is the team going to come together so that they complement each other? People have different strengths. It's a bit like a newsroom. You know, when I was the editor of the Northern Echo, I wasn't, I wasn't the best person at anything, really. I wasn't. There were better people than me at different areas of the job, you know, whether it was design or whether it was politics or whether it was business or whatever, you know have a team that you know is going to come together. Um, and I think it's the same with an ambassador programme. Make sure you've got people in that kind of ambassadorial squad that that have got different strengths and can uh, can meet your objectives together. Mm. Those are really important points. Thanks, Pete. And so for someone who might be asked to be an ambassador or even would like to be, what what things should that individual consider? Um, well, I think the first thing is to make sure that you're comfortable with the ethos of the organisation you're representing. I mean, like I said, I, I am very, very comfortable with working for Talent and Building Society because it's, it's ethical, it's caring, it's community-minded. Now, I wouldn't be comfortable being an ambassador for a loan shark or whatever it might be, but Down Police mm. Society is a very easy fit. So I think if you're going to be an ambassador, then ask yourself how comfortable you are representing that company. Um, and it's a no-brainer with Talented Building Society. I think be proactive in suggesting... 
how your involvement can grow. I'm never comfortable just sitting back and waiting to be asked to do things. I want to suggest things and add as much value as I can. So be proactive, I think, is really important. Um, and I think the other thing I would say is really, you know, you've got to keep up to date with developments within that organization. If you're going to be an ambassador for an organization, know what it stands for, know where it's going, what's its direction, what are its values, what developments is it about to announce, so that you're a bit of an expert on that organization, really. And uh, and I think if you're going to if you're going to be paid to be a community ambassador, then the least that you can do is do your homework on on that organization. But I think the other thing, and I think the, what's been so successful about what we've done at Downtown Building Society, and it's, it's, it's advice for both the organization and the person becoming the ambassador is be prepared to be creative, think differently. The idea of doing a children's book as a marketing tool, I'll be honest, I haven't thought of that. But I'll tell you what, it is so powerful and it's proved to be so powerful. So be creative um, and you will be amazed at what you can do. And of course, you know, for some people, a children's book would would kind of like frighten them. They might think, oh, my God, I, I can't write. So play with your strengths. And you just mentioned that. Yeah, there will be there will be people out there wherever you are um who can do that for you you know it's about knowing who's out there who you know it goes back to me saying um choose your ambassadors well um what skills have they got um because writing a children's book if if that's something that you decide to do in your organization and why not i mean i know of at least one uh, i probably shouldn't name them but one major national brand that picked up on what we've done at Downs and Building Society and launched a children's book as a direct result <laughs> and um, picked my brains about it. Um, and then on the pretense that I was going to get the job to write the book, and then after picking my brains, they decided that they would do it internally, um, mm. which was a bit annoying, but there you go. So mm-hmm. I, I know that there are people out there looking at what's happened here. And, you know, I always think, when I was the editor of the paper, I always stole good ideas unashamedly. If you see a good idea in another newspaper, steal it, adapt it, use it. Now, there is no monopoly on good ideas. So, look, if you see a good idea, and I do think that what Downton Building Society has done has, is, is a really good idea, then, you know, why not steal it? You know, go and, go and do your own children's book. And uh, I'd be more than happy to hear from anybody who wants a book writing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I would be happy to be the author um, of, of as many children's books as, as you want to uh, throw at me. Mm, I mean, it's such a worthy thing to do. So, Pete, we've covered so much in this episode. It's been fantastic. And I've got absolutely no doubt that uh, listeners in certain industries will want to set up an ambassador program and know about your experience. So how can they reach you? Um, well, um, I'm easily found, to be honest. My, my company's called Peter Barron Media. Um, I'm based in Darlington in the northeast of England. So if you just Google me, you will find me. I've got a website, which is uh, Peter Barron Media. Uh, dot com um, and I'm available on um, on email as well at peter at 
peterbarrenmedia.com. So I'm more than happy to, if somebody wants to pick my brains about what I've done on behalf of Downton Building Society or anybody else, really, just please get in touch. It's not a problem. I'd love to hear from you. That will be great. And uh, I'm sure people will be in touch. And it's been great reconnecting with you after all these years. Thank you so much for having the time, Pete. It's a great pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Sheila. Thank you. Take care, Pete. And you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.